Good evening. The GOP blinks on the debt ceiling. Why a Haiti envoy quit the Biden administration. New laws in New York State to curb opioid-related deaths. Harm reduction, a new way to look at drugs. And the fallout from a police union resignation. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, October 7th, 2021. Senate leaders announced an agreement today extending the government's borrowing authority into December, temporarily averting an unprecedented federal default that experts say would devastate the economy. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer declared, our hope is to get this done as soon as today. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The pathway our Democratic colleagues have accepted will spare the American people any near-term crisis while definitively resolving the majority's excuse that they lacked time to address the debt limit through the 304 reconciliation process. Now there'll be no question, they'll have plenty of time. Or if our colleagues would instead prefer a more traditional bipartisan discussion around basic governance, they can stop trying to ram through yet another reckless taxing and spending spree that would hurt families and help China. That would be the path toward that kind of discussion. And that was Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. In their agreement, the Republican and Democratic leaders edged back from a perilous standoff over lifting the nation's borrowing cap with Democratic senators accepting an offer from McConnell. The White House signaled the president's support of the deal. The deal came after Biden, after Biden urged legislators to get the deal done and avoid damage to the economy if the United States were to default. Vice President Kamala Harris pointedly uh, uh, pointed out the fact the debt covers money already spent, saying it was time to pay the bills. We need to pay our bills. Um, This debt, without question, was accrued by members of both parties, including $8 trillion from the last administration, from the Trump administration. We need to pay our bills, so let's get it done as quickly as possible. Vice President Harris, the president yesterday shamed Republican senators for threatening to filibuster any suspension of the $28.4 trillion cap on the government's borrowing authority. He met with corporate representatives of Citi, J.P. Morgan, Chase, and NASDAQ in person at the White House to hammer home the point. And in news from America's ever-expanding border crisis, the number of U.S.-bound Haitian migrants temporarily stuck in northern Colombia has risen to about 20,000. That's according to U.S. government and aid officials. Some are calling the situation at the roadless Darien Gap between Colombia and Central America a human bottleneck. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security says that the United States expelled more than 7,000 Haitian migrants to Haiti aboard 65 flights from September 19th through October 3rd. The expulsions to a devastated nation many left years ago have received sharp criticism and prompted the resignation of Daniel Foote, the Biden administration's special envoy to Haiti. Foote explained his resignation to Congress earlier today. This problem needs to be solved in Haiti or they will continue to come to our borders, particularly when they hear that their countrymen got in earlier in July, August, early September up there. But deportation back to Haiti is not the answer right now. I am not saying that intending migrants who are in illegal status shouldn't be deported, but Haiti is too dangerous. Our own Diplomats cannot leave our compounds in Port-au-Prince without armed guard. And the already failed 
essential services delivery of the Haitian government is really overwhelmed in places like City Soleil, the biggest slum in the hemisphere. I've seen pictures of waste and stuff. So deportation in the short term is not going to make Haiti more stable. In fact, it's going to make it worse. Haiti is facing a deep economic crisis, a spike in gang-related violence and great political instability following the July 7th assassination of President Jovenel Moise. Uh, Daniel Foote, the person we heard before, was the former special envoy to Haiti who resigned. And a lawyer for the Republican-controlled Arizona Senate told a judge today that he would cause permanent damage to the legislative process if he requires lawmakers to release records about their private deliberations over the Senate GOP's review of the 2020 election. The Arizona Senate has released tens of thousands of public records, but is withholding about a thousand that lawmakers say are subject to legislative privilege. The hearing came the same day that Maricopa County officials testified at a hearing of the U.S. House Oversight and Reform Committee focusing on the Senate's election review. That's the Arizona Senate's election review brought mostly by supporters of President Trump to try and show that somehow they had uh, stolen the election for the Democrats, something that remains unproven. The chair of the Maricopa Board of Supervisors is Jack Sellers. These last 10 months, I've learned a lot about people. And frankly, I was naive in thinking that I could just sit down with our state Senate leadership and explain the answers to their questions and accusations, and we could put this uncertainty behind us and move on with securing a fruitful future for our residents. But it's become clear that there are those who don't care what the facts are. They just want to gain political power and raise money by fostering mistrust of the greatest power an individual can exercise in the United States, their vote. I'm an elected official. Some say I signed up for this, and that's true. But I ran because economic development and maintaining our quality of life is very important to me. Making sure the Valley of the Sun has the proper investment in infrastructure, technology, and education is what drives me. Relitigating a failed campaign is not what drives me. So it's time to move on. That's Jack Sellers. He's the chair of the Maricopa Board of Supervisors. In related news, Donald Trump intends to assert executive privilege in a congressional investigation into the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, a move that could prevent the testimony of one-time aides. That's according to a letter sent by lawyers for the former president. The move sets the stage for a likely clash with Democrats who are investigating the roles of Trump and his allies in the run-up to the riot when thousands of Trump supporters broke into the Capitol as Congress is certifying the results of the presidential election won by Democrat Joe Biden. And in more news from Capitol Hill today, Committee Chairman Representative Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, said subpoenas had gone to Ali Abdul-Akbar, also known as Ali Alexander, and Nathan Martin, as well as the organization Stop the Steal, to learn more about the rally that was planned at the Capitol grounds at the same time as the larger gathering on the National Mall. In October 2020, the Arizona Republican Party appeared to ask supporters to consider giving their lives to keep Trump in office, retweeting Alexander's pledge on Twitter that he was willing to give my life for this fight. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. 
Today, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed a five-bill harm, uh, pardon me, five-bill harm reduction and overdose reduction package. It's aimed towards reducing drug-related overdose deaths across the New York State. It encourages those suffering from addiction to seek help in their recovery in and outside of prisons. Linda Perry reports. New York Governor Kathy Hochul spoke today at John Jay College in Manhattan about opioid addiction. She says dealing with the opioid crisis is personal. She tells the story of her nephew, Michael, injured working in a deli and then lost to an overdose. He cut his hand deeply on a piece of equipment at the delicatessen. Goes to the doctor to heal him, to heal him. And... He follows the doctor's directions. Doctor prescribes a teenager a supply of opiate-based prescription drugs to alleviate the pain. The pain continues. Another prescription continues. The next thing we know, he's developed an addiction, and he finds that it's cheaper to acquire the drug that makes him feel better as his brain chemistry has now changed because it begins to change literally after a matter of days and weeks where the addiction forms and he starts going to the streets. Streets are cheaper, easier, hides it from his mom for as long as he can, gets into trouble, ends up in jail. His mom has to be strip searched to go visit him in jail in our community. The indignity inflicted on our family for people who still loved Michael but saw that he would become a different person. We never gave up hope in Michael. Hochul says she wants all the Michaels and their families to know there are good people with great potential dealing with an illness, both inside and outside of prison walls. She says we had an opioid crisis before, but with COVID, it's a crisis on steroids because people found themselves so discombobulated, so many people fell through the cracks. The five overdose prevention bills remove barriers to treatment. Some of these barriers, she points out, are illogical. Right now, syringes are illegal in the state of New York. There are some police officers locking people up for possession of a syringe, right? Hey, the jails are, jails are full enough. I think we don't need people there for syringes possession. On the other hand... The state of New York gives out millions of syringes to help people because of the public health crisis. So, okay, you're going to jail, but it's okay for the state of New York to do this. Does anybody think that should continue to be the law in the state of New York? Okay, all right, that's why we're here. Let's just, uh, Gustavo Rivera recognized that, and Richard Godfrey from the Assembly, they recognized this. They said, can we just fix this? And today we are, we are going to decriminalize the possession of a syringe in the state of New York. And another issue, when I was uh, co-chair of the Heroin Opioid Task Force that took me to every corner of the state over the last seven years, we had many hearings, we talked to people, I went to visit jails, I talked to sheriffs, I said, what's the problem like in your jails? Well, we don't have the resources, there's not, you know, we don't really want to do this, and just everybody had a different philosophy about what happens to people incarcerated, and I spoke about this earlier. Uh, luckily, we have Senator Jamal Bailey and Assemblymember Linda Rosenthal who said, let's fix this. Why aren't we helping people while they're in jail? So our second bill that we're signing and is going to make tremendous sense, but it's also going to make a difference in people's lives and that we are now mandating medication-based assistance treatment in all New York State jails and prisons. And that will now be available to anyone in prison who needs it. 
the third bill creates an online repository for opioid reversal drugs. So these treatment drugs can be found in hard-to-reach areas across the state. Fourth, these opioid reversal treatment drugs are decriminalized and possession can't be used as evidence of crime in a court. And the fifth law in this package expands the number of crimes committed by those with a substance use disorder. That means judges can order an individual to treatment instead of incarceration, allowing them a greater chance for successful long-term rehabilitation. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Linda. Harm reduction is the theory of treatment that says drugs are less the problem with addiction than the ways people interact with drugs and that drug treatment should help people control rather than completely stop drug usage. A sponsor of two of the bills regarding opiates and harm reduction is Assemblymember Linda P. Rosenthal, representing parts of the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We have we have a ways to go yet, but by Governor Hochul signing These five bills into law represents a sea change in how this state has been dealing with the overdose problem. All of us are are very, very happy that the state will have to post an online directory uh, for distributors of opioid antagonists. So if you want to find where there's naloxone or where there's buprenorphine, you, you should have easy access to it because it should be online. Oregon, first state ever to legalize opiates, at least small amounts of it, and to provide injection mm-hmm. sites similar to a lot of countries okay. in Europe do. Is there the possibility of injection sites and something along those lines? Since 2016, I have a bill that would establish opioid overdose centers where no one has ever died. And that's the bottom line here is, First, ensuring that people do not overdose. And when they go into these opioid overdose centers, there's a full range of medical personnel and and others there to ensure that you don't die. Connected with them are services and supports when the person's ready to access them. Switzerland, so many countries have these all over their cities. They far surpass the way New York State handles substance use disorder and and addiction. And so I've been pushing for, it's like five years now, to establish them in New York State. It's much easier now that we don't have uh, Trump in the White House. But it's still, people are still learning about them. They shouldn't be scared. Like some people have the vision like, oh, you know, you're going to walk down Broadway and see a store, which is a safe injection facility. It's like... That's not how it works, and people are scared. So, you know, we're going to do more education, but I think we really have a good chance and opportunity next session to pass that into law, which would be amazing and a tremendous breakthrough. And that is Assemblymember Rosenthal. She says reducing deaths from overdoses is the main goal of the legislation, but she says adopting a harm reduction approach to drug use is an intended outcome. And-
weekend, closer to home, the long march for justice, march to from Trenton to, uh, pardon me, march to Trenton for police accountability, social justice, and economic progress, is going to take place tomorrow, Friday, October eighth, twenty twenty one. It's a march that's being called by the People's Organization for Progress, and it'll start 11 a.m. at 2 Church Street at the intersection of Church Street and Bloomfield Avenue in Montclair, New Jersey. The march route is approximately 67 miles long and will wind its way through 27 towns and cities. It's scheduled to take place over nine days. Lawrence Ham is the chairman of People's Organization for Progress, and he'll attempt to walk the entire distance, covering about 8 to 12 miles per day. The largest portion of the March route proceeds along 27, Route 27 South and Route 206 South. And we spoke with Larry Ham earlier today. This march initially was focused on and is still focused on the issue of police brutality. We're demanding that the legislature pass a number of bills dealing with police reform, but chief among those at the top of the list is Bill A4656S2963. This bill would permit municipalities to establish police review boards with subpoena power. Uh, as you know, the city of Newark and Mayor Bras Baraka established a police review board in Newark and initially gave it subpoena power, but then the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge Number 12 in Newark sued the city in various courts to stop the police review board. And the case went all the way up to the state Supreme Court. It, you know, it went through Superior Court and other courts, appellate court, all the way up to the, the state Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said that Newark could establish a police review board, but only the state legislature could give it subpoena power. And so um, Assemblywoman Angela McKnight from Jersey City, she introduced the bill A4656 that would do that not only for Newark, but would permit any municipality that wanted to establish a police review board to have one with subpoena power. And if, and if the review board doesn't have any subpoena power, it doesn't have any teeth, really, and really can't remedy the situation appropriately. It came to mind when you were talking about the the police unions and uh, trying to sue and stop you from passing some of these bills or forcing you to have to pass them. And I was thinking of Ed Mullins, the head of the Sergeant Benevolence Association, who had to resign from his role in New York City as head of the SBA. He had all his belongings trucked out by the FBI and is facing a combined FBI NYPD investigation. And we don't know what it is. What is your response to hearing about what happened to Sergeant Mullins? Well, my immediate response is, why is he even still on desk duty? I mean, this guy, look, if I was at a particular job and the FBI raided where I worked and raided my home, do you think I would still have my job? No. This just goes to show you uh, how far beyond normal prosecution the police are. And it's really time to rein them in. The Ed Mullen situation is really a case, I would say, of intersectionality in reverse, right? Here you have the police, a pro-Trump supporter, QAnon, I don't know if he's anything else, but all of that comes, and corruption. So you have the police, QAnon, and corruption, and pro-Trump all wrapped up in Ed Mullins, and he gets busted, his house gets raided, his 
His union office gets raided. But somehow, through all of that, the police contract permits him to keep his job. This is why we got to bust all that up. We have to end qualified immunity for the police. We have to force our elected officials to renegotiate these contracts so that these contracts do not place the police above the law, because that's essentially what they are now. They're above the law. They're not held to the same standard. A regular citizen is held to. Do you think if a regular citizen was busted by the FBI, had their house raided and their office raided, their workplace raided, that they would still be employed? No. Everybody knows the answer to that. Everybody that can hear this on the radio knows the answer to that. And this is an example why we must have community control over the police. It's absolutely essential. The major antidote to police brutality is an organized and mobilized community. Here in Jersey, you know, police brutality basically for, for almost a year was in the newspapers every day. Now there's hardly a story about police brutality. In the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, all the elected officials were saying how terrible it was and something needed to be done. But a year later, very few reforms have actually been passed. We just saw how the negotiations around the George Floyd bill broke down in Washington, D.C. So this march is part and parcel of the effort that we need to keep the pressure on, to keep mobilizing, to keep organizing, to stay in the streets, to keep this issue in the forefront of public consciousness. And that's Larry Ham, chairman of the People's Organization for Progress, who will attempt to walk the entire 67 miles on tomorrow's long march for justice, a march to Trenton for police accountability. That's in New Jersey, social justice and economic progress. It'll take place tomorrow, Friday, October 8th, and it starts at 11 a.m. at 2 Church Street, the intersection of Church Street and Bloomfield Avenue. Make sure in, in Montclair, New Jersey, be sure to bring your walking shoes. And that's on the news for Thursday, October 7th, 2021. The news was produced by Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tonight at midnight on Radio Unnameable. <laughs>